With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Look around. What do you see? Cars. Lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on AutoTrader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on AutoTrader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. AutoTrader. Hey there, everybody. It's your pals, Josh and Chuck. And we wanted to record an intro to this episode because um, when we first recorded it and got it ready to publish and edit, um, things were a lot different in America because that was like a week ago. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, the events of the past uh, week or two have taught us that something like this podcast episode is more relevant than ever. And it Mm -hmm. just kind of worked out that way. Yeah, and we also wanted to say that we grieve the death of George Floyd and everybody who's ever died unfairly at the hands of the police, and we stand with Black Lives Matter and anyone who's fighting for justice in the United States. Absolutely. So when you hear this episode on Tiananmen Square and think, well, that could never happen, much less in the United States, uh, be careful, because that's the kind of dangerous thinking that can get us all in trouble. And on with the show. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. Uh, And it's just the two of us. Chuck and I decided we can make it if we try. Just the two of us, Chuckers and I. (laughs) How long did you plan that? Buddy, it just came pouring Right out of my brain, through my mouth, <laughs> and just landed with a thud on the the, the desk. Yeah, R.I.P. to the great Bill Withers. Oh, I was thinking more um, Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. R.I.P. to for him sure. too. What? Austin Powers? He died a long time ago, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you got me there for a second. Yes, what, he did. Mike Myers had passed? I thought Mike Myers had passed, and then I was like, wait, did Dr. Evil die? I was like, wait, Dr. Evil's not real. It was really right. confusing for a second there, man. <laughs> so uh, I, last night, did one of the things that I love doing as part of our work, Chuck, which is watch a really great documentary and yeah. get paid for it. Don't you love that? It's great. I love it. There's a really good documentary by Frontline, PBS's show, about Tank Man, which you probably... Tank Girl? Tank Man. Totally Uh, different kind of thing. This is not Lori Petty. This is an unknown person who no one, as far as anyone knows, knows their name. But even if you're not familiar with Tank Man, just the name, you've probably, if you live outside of China, seen this picture. It's a picture of just a lone man um, wearing a white kind of dress shirt and black pants holding a couple of shopping bags to the side, staring down a column of heavy tanks that he has stopped single-handedly just by standing in front of them. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those uh, indelible images that if you were, you know, it still resonates, obviously, but if you were, um, you know, cognizant of the news in 1989, Mm -hmm. then you could not escape this image or forget it. Yeah, and I mean, what, you were close to around 18 or so, so I'm sure this really had a big impact on you and it was going on, right? Yeah, I mean, just just had graduated uh, high school. Mm-hmm. So, like, this must have really kind of raised the hackles on the back of your neck and gotten you pretty worked up like the rest of the world, I would guess. Yeah, I remember it being kind of one of the first big political events that uh, got my head out of my butt. <laughs> yeah, it did that for a lot of people, too. I mean, like, what happened that, that day or those days, like, I think June 3rd and 4th of 1989, the communist regime that had a iron grip on the country and still does today, maybe even more so today, um, almost fell. 
was almost toppled by a popular uprising. And to stamp it out, the government went to the most extreme measures possible, which was commanding the army to murder citizens, unarmed, peacefully protesting citizens, were gunned down in the streets like, like, like they were enemy combatants, basically, in, the, in the, their own city in Beijing. And it was just a horrific thing that managed to kind of trickle out and definitely captured the world's attention, pulled the world's head out of its butt, as you would say. Yeah, so, you know, to tell the story, we need to go back uh, in time a little bit. And big thanks to our pal Dave Ruse for helping us out with this one. This mm-hmm. is very good. In fact, I'd it was on a different laptop, and I kind of forgot it was sitting in my folder when I – it had been in there for like a month or so, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been there a while. And then I saw it, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. We got Tiananmen Square on the burner. So, yeah, Dave did a great job, and we have to travel back in time – to uh, previous to 1989, when the sort of feeling among students in China was that, you know what, Uh, this communism isn't working out so great, and we want to start making a little bit of noise. And we're not saying to topple our government or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but we're saying um, let's get the corruption in check and let's maybe um, get some free speech going on and some some free press and free expression and they thought they could get there uh, – they thought they could get there, which is what makes this really, really sad, among many other things. Yeah, and then even sadder than that to me is they almost got there. You know, like this was – I mean, this was close. This is like a hair's breadth away where they brought this so so much to the government's doorstep and laid this at their feet that the government had to at least consider, if not openly to one another – at least, you know, to themselves, like, do we just bow to the will of the people and just say, okay, we're going to do things differently? Like, it was a big, big deal. It was a big deal. And um, I guess preemptively, we should say we're going to do our best with with some of the pronunciations of the names. They're really tough. Uh, They are tough. And we'll, as usual, we'll do our best and probably fail and stop short of being perfect. I think we, we learned our uh, lesson on the underground city. At least we're not going to pronounce X like X. Right. <laughs> right. So the students had a little bit of wind in their sails because they're college students, and that's what college students are like. That's why we love them. Mm-hmm. And they thought they had um, an ally who was a pro-reform leader and pretty high up in the Communist Party, and Hugh Yaobang. Sounds about right. Okay. Uh, he was forced out of power in 87, though, and when he died in April, April 15th of 1989, the memorializing and the mourning of his death is what really kind of kick-started this whole uh, process that led up to June 3rd. Yeah, and in the late 80s, <clears throat> what you call the president of China uh, is was named uh, Deng Xiaoping, and he was he had been in charge for a while, but in addition to the president— in a communist country, you also have the leaders of the Communist Party. They're not exactly like lateral, but they're pretty high up. You have like a prime yeah. minister. You have the leader of the party, the general secretary. Then you also have the president of the country. And um, Deng was the president of China at the time. But there, within the party and within the leadership of the country, including Hugh, and Hugh was kind of the face of this movement, there was this idea that, okay, the Maoist revolution happened, Mao was great, but we we can't run a country just living by these kind of lofty principles that Mao espoused. We need to kind of get a little more loose gripped here, at least economically. Um, and there was a whole contingent led again by Hugh that, that basically said, maybe we should kind of ease up on the government planning a little bit and let a little bit of free market go and see what happens. We really think that, like, there's going to be a lot less starvation, a lot less poverty if we just let a little bit of this stuff into there. So there was this kind of progressive movement. But then when Hugh, uh, when when these protests kind of started in 1987, they basically showed Hugh the door, like you were saying. He He was removed from office because he had kind of demonstrated that that level of, like, loosening of the grip on the people would lead to things like protests and demonstrations. But it was too late. They had opened the door now. And then, like you said, when he died, that was that was kind of the, the, 
the lit match that got thrown onto this powder keg. And I take it you're on a first name basis now because it's easier to pronounce. Hugh. Hugh is actually his last name in China. They say oh, the last is? name first. Yes. So I'm oh, getting away with geez. it both ways. I'm having my um, my dumpling and eating it too. Oh man, that's the best way to have a dumpling. <laughs> right. So, uh, and I learned something new today too. Thanks, Chuck. That's basically why I wake up in the morning. <laughs> uh, so. What happened is, uh, you know, he died on April 15th, 89. A um, bunch of students, like thousands of students, got together in uh, Tiananmen Square mm. to mourn his passing. And Tiananmen Square, we should say, is it's a, an enormous place. It's the largest public space in the world, mm-hmm. right in the middle of Beijing. Uh, it is just, it's the town center unlike any town center in the world. Yeah, and there's like no trees anywhere. It's just flat and then edged by enormous public buildings. It makes you feel very small. Yeah, and it's also uh, a perfect place to get like thousands and thousands and thousands of people together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is what happened during the funeral celebration in Tiananmen Square. And it didn't go on for too long before students started to sort of use this as an opportunity to not only mourn someone that they uh, believed was going to champion their cause, but they said, we can use this now and let's just let's just camp out and let's hold some speeches and let's sort of start giving our demands for political reform. Mm-hmm. Like throwing peace signs and just basically peaceful protests that you would imagine students from. And most of them came from Beijing University, which from what I understand is the, the premier elite university in the entire country. So these were like the, the children of the elites, as it were. So there's definitely a measure of tolerance of this going on, whereas had it been, you know, just a a popular uprising or a popular protest from the start, they probably would have been treated a lot more roughly, and it certainly would not have been allowed to have gone on as long as it had. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, um, the sort of split in ideologies within the party, which is really interesting to think about now. Um, but they were split about what to do about these demonstrations. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the, the the biggest civil protest, longest running since communism had taken hold in 1949. And there were some people, it wasn't just like, all right, let's go in there and mow them down. There was a, a, a complete faction within the party that was like, you know what? Um, these are students and they want what's best for us and maybe we should listen to them a little bit. Yeah, because it's like you said, they weren't saying down with communism, down with the Chinese Communist Party. They were they were saying like down with corruption and you know, we want a we want a little more free speech, like some really basic stuff that didn't require the entire system to be overthrown, which was I think another reason why they were kind of allowed to continue. And then yeah, like you're saying, there were sympathetic members of the Communist Party high up in the party who were like, no, no, we should just, you know, maybe hear him out or just let it, this thing fizzle out. But then on the other side was a guy named Li Peng. And he was the he was the antagonist in this whole thing. Most people paint him as the villain. Um, but I read an, an article about how he's actually the fall guy, that it was really Deng Xiaoping who was the president, who was the true architect of all of this. And that Li Peng... While he gets all of the um, notorious Higher. credit, yeah. yeah, for this whole thing, he uh, he he didn't he didn't he wasn't the architect of it, but he also didn't stop his boss, um, Deng Xiaoping, from from carrying this out or from being the architect of it too. So it's not like he was a good guy. He was right. easy to hate, I think, from what I read, and it made him a an easy target of the protest and then the aftermath as well. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, uh, I think people, it's easy to paint a good guy and a bad guy in a situation like this. Right. And he was painted definitely as the bad guy. And again, we're not saying that he was some awesome person. But uh, on the other side was the Communist Party general secretary, and his name was Zhao Yang, And he was the one that was, you know, more sympathetic to the cause, basically. Yeah. And so he was kind of holding back Deng Xiaoping's um uh, worst impulses and saying like, no, we just need to kind of like approach this peacefully or whatever. And he got removed too, um, which I really think kind of highlights just how uh, 
uh, how much crossing or opposing Deng Xiaoping, where it would get you, it would get you removed at best. And actually, uh, Zhao Ziyang, he um, spent, when he was removed from office, he spent the rest of his life under house arrest. Because, I mean, that's what happens when you are removed yeah. from office there. They just say, go home and don't leave again. You're under uh, political quarantine. Yeah, so, you know, they had seen this happening all around them. Uh, the Soviet Union was crumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw countries, communist countries, people just like these students kind of rising up and saying that they've had enough. So they were nervous. And when uh, Zhao Ziyang went on, he went out of town, basically, he went on uh, to Korea uh, on a state visit. Mm-hmm. This is when Li Ping said, all right, now is our time. This guy's out of the country. Mm-hmm. And he's like, basically, we can... We can start the the first piece to toppling these students, and it wasn't initially a violent piece. It was an ad. It was in April 26. It was an ad in the People's Daily, the state newspaper, and it was an editorial basically that just denounced the demonstrations, and that was their first sort of shot fired was, your friend is out of town. Well, they didn't say that, but because he was out of town. They said, we're going to run an editorial denouncing this. Yeah, and they basically said, look, these students are being misguided, that the whole thing started earnestly as a memorial for, uh, for uh, Hugh, um, but that, that it had been taken advantage of by probably outside agitators, maybe even like plants from other governments who were fomenting like a popular uprising out of this um, genuine, you know, sorrow for this guy who was, you know, a real, a real advocate for them. Um, but regardless of how it started or what's going on, we can't, we can't abide this any longer. And if we do, yeah. there's going to be, I think they put it, we'll never have another day's peace unless we act. Um, they didn't say brutally. Oh, resolutely. Unless it's checked resolutely, they said. Which and is, then in the margin, it said, see, brutally. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, that's not checked resolutely is against a, a popular protest. Is, that's menacing stuff. Should we take a break? More menacing stuff. All right, we'll take a break, and we'll come back and talk about uh, the effect that this editorial had right after this. Stop. You, you, you know. Stop. 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 You should know. Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments. And if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care. Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy, but you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy. It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for. Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. All righty. So they ran this editorial. They said that the... uh, they would be checked resolutely if they didn't disperse. <laughs> and they thought that that would do the job, basically. But all that, that had the complete opposite effect. Yeah. Like, literally overnight, people all over China, 400 cities across China, had people coming out and protesting because they were uh, invigorated by these students and what they saw going on in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it says, uh, Dave had an estimate here, of one in ten citizens took to the streets, and these were people of 
all social strata, all walks of life in China. Yeah, yeah, one in ten in Beijing, but then tens to hundreds of millions of protesters all pouring out into the streets and cities across China. Like, they had a huge problem overnight on their hands. Like, they, they, people were like, that was the, that was, that editorial was the exact wrong move. Yeah, it was the wrong move. And uh, things just kind of went on this way for a little while until uh, I think around mid-May when Gorbachev uh, was coming to visit in China. So they said, this is the perfect chance. Mm -hmm. Let's stage a hunger strike in Tiananmen Square. And this was not a good look for the Chinese Communist Party. They were not happy that this was going on while Gorbachev uh, was going to pay the visit. Yeah, because, I mean, you wanted to impress Gorby. He was probably the most popular guy in the world right then in 1989. Um, yeah, you, you, they lost face, and it was it was a pretty well-done move on the, the part of the students who carried out the hunger strike. Um, but that, that editorial that kicked all this off, that really kind of changed things, there was a huge turn, there was a sea change in the entire thing when regular people started taking up this protest because it right. started out as a student protest and now all of a sudden it was an everyday Chinese person protest. Um, and that apparently changed the entire attitude of the government toward this whole thing that was no longer paternal and kind of head patty and um, uh, patient. It was like, wait a minute, I saw in this Frontline documentary that somebody said it was like the workers are the ones who who put the Chinese Communist Party in power. And now it yeah. suddenly looked like the workers were about to take the power away from them. And this totally. scared the bejesus out of, out of them. Because, again, this is a very um, – uh, they had an iron stranglehold over their population. And there were also – there was a lot of corruption in the government too. So the, the, the whole idea of being removed from power – had a lot more at stake than just, you know, losing power. Like, there there was, they, these people had done quite a bit that they might have to answer for after they lost power, you know? Oh, yeah, big time. They were, they were officially worried at this point. Right. Um, you still had Zhao calling for uh, cooler heads to prevail here. Um, but, and this is before his removal, just before. But Li Ping said, you know what, uh, the only way to take care of this is by kind of cracking the whip in a hard, hard way. Um, martial law should be imposed. Students heard about this, and this is when the big, big protest at Tiananmen Square, I think they estimated like over a million people, 1.2 million people. Um, students, there were police involved. There were some military that were protesting. Mm -hmm. And this is when everything really started to gain some momentum um, and, you know, what students thought was the the right direction, but it turns out was a bad move probably. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight— Although you can never—yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like yeah, now. But at the time, it was like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to go to the mattresses. Rather than backing down, they said, okay, we're going to escalate on our end as well. If they're going to amass troops and invade Beijing, which is what they did, we're going to meet them and try to drive them out. <clears throat> and at first, it actually worked. There was a, a first incursion into Beijing of about 300,000 Chinese soldiers. The Chinese military showed up in Beijing in tanks, armored personnel carriers, um, troop transport trucks, the whole shebang. Like, imagine uh, 300,000 soldiers showing up in Atlanta and just basically being like, everybody needs to go home. The thing is— Everybody this, would go home. This first, Probably. <laughs> this first— um, this first incursion, I guess, into Beijing um, didn't actually make it to the city center because the people in the suburbs uh, came out and swamped these army convoys and prevented them from moving forward and actually kept them there in gridlock of a sea of humanity for about four days, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a huge victory kind of right off the bat. They had, um, you know, they— they went after these personnel carriers and these tanks. Mm -hmm. They had children. They had uh, older adults. They had they basically kind of paralyzed what they were trying to do, and then decided to do a very kind of brilliant thing, which was appeal to the good nature of these soldiers as human beings. Right. Um, I saw one article that that kind of guessed that about sixty percent of uh, the PLA soldiers were illiterate. Mm -hmm. um, they were uneducated. They were from out in the country. 
And these Beijing city folks would approach them and they would bring them food and they would bring them things to drink. And they would send their children out to talk to them and say things like, you know, you should be defending us. You shouldn't be attacking us. You should join us. And some of them did. Some of those soldiers stepped down and kind of quit on the spot uh, knowing full well that, that it would not end well for them. And the majority of them obviously didn't. Right, right. But even, you know, even if they didn't step down and, and quit, some of them did step down and mingle and talk. And I saw footage of them when they finally left on the fourth day. They turned around and, and retreated away from Beijing. You know, a good third or half of the troops on these trucks that were driving away were waving to the yeah. to the people of Beijing who'd just been who just spent the last four days like feeding them and talking to them and basically trying to change their minds about this because I don't know if we made it we made it clear when the people from the Beijing suburbs swamped these trucks this is a big nonviolent form of resistance it wasn't violent oh yeah it was a it was a charm offensive it was just straight up nonviolent resistance and it worked like it totally worked. On the one hand, it worked because the Chinese government hadn't given them orders to fire on anybody and probably right. gave them orders not to carry out any violence against the people. Um, and that that's really why it actually ultimately worked, because if if you're being met with that kind of resistance and you can't meet that resistance with violence, it's not like the soldiers were going to explain their position or the government's position to the Beijing residents and change their minds. There was nothing right. they could do but just sit there and then finally turn around and leave. And so at first, the uh, the residents of Beijing were kind of chuffed with themselves, you know, like like that really worked. This nonviolent resistance turned back 300,000 troops from China's equivalent of Arkansas, who just showed up in China's equivalent of New York and um, and, and <laughs> kept them from invading, basically. Yeah, so the government sees this happen, and they they're on full uh, they're on high alert now. They're fully worried, and they see the writing on the wall that this could be the the end of the Communist Party as mm -hmm. we know it. Yeah, if we don't squash this thing once and for all, and so they said, "All right, here's what we're going to do: let's send the army in again, just like we did the first time, except now." You're going to get to Tiananmen Square and squash this uprising. If they come out and meet you in the suburbs, um, take care of things however you need to to get to Tiananmen Square, like full authorization to use deadly force. Yeah, and I saw, on, again, on that documentary, they were saying, like, they were given guns and ammunition, and the, the ammunition yeah. they were given were um, thumb-sized bullets, the kind of bullets that— um, from what I could tell, they were um, what's that kind that like turn into uh, like like circular saws inside people. What's it called? It's like a really common word everybody knows. Hollow point, I think. Oh, anyway, maybe. they um, they were meant for like combat. The the bullets they were using these weren't rubber bullets. They weren't even regular bullets. They were like combat grade bullets that these the troops were given. And you have to uh, you have to remember too, Chuck. By this time, there's nobody now because Zhao has been removed, um, there's nobody arguing against this impulse, at least not openly. Yeah. And so this impulse is allowed to go unchecked. Nobody stopped and said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is crazy. We're talking about going in and slaughtering our own people. Um, we have to find another way. Nobody was saying that. And in, in fact, Li, Li Peng was at the very least keeping his mouth shut, if not supporting this whole thing as well. Yeah, so, you know, the students get word that this is what's coming, mm -hmm. um, basically a second wave. They were victorious in that first wave, so they were, like you said, they were chuffed. They were probably like, all right, bring it on. We'll, yeah. let's, do the, let's do the same thing again. We're going to charm they you did. again? Yeah, pretty much, and they did the same thing. They had these, they improvised these barricades at the entrance points. They blocked off roads with people, with buses, uh, with tire, like stacks of tires and stuff. Mm hmm and uh, on June 3rd, the night of June 3rd, the tanks roll in, the personnel vehicles roll in. Uh, by this time, there are some rocks being thrown and some uh, Molotov cocktails and stuff like that. Right. And things start to get a little unruly. And the PLA just charged through. And at 9.30 p.m., the first shots rang out. And it was very clear very quickly that they were just going to mow people down. 
Yeah, but apparently, even though it was clear to some people, to other people, it was so surprising and just so utterly unbelievable that it took way too long for it to sink in what was going on. Oh, I'm sure Um, everybody was shocked. Yeah. So some people, I think, just started running when they saw people falling and, and bodies starting to pile up. But other people were still, you know, throwing rocks and it hadn't really sunk in yet. And then ultimately, eventually, everybody got it and they started to turn and run. And then as they would turn and run, the uh the government or the soldiers would fire into their backs, keep firing into crowds that are running away, unarmed crowds, maybe have rocks, maybe have Molotov cocktails, set a bus on fire, but they don't have guns, they don't have machine guns. I was looking, and apparently, Chuck, China has one of the strictest gun policies um, in the world. Like, if you're just an average Chinese person, you are not armed. You could get a gun if you apply for one and the government gives it to you, if you have like a real need for it, like maybe there's bears that live around your house that keep right. killing your livestock or something. But if you live in Beijing, you don't have a gun. And it, it, it makes me wonder, like, would this have erupted into civil war if Beijing was armed, you know? Um, or would it be, have been even worse, you know? Would they have fought back a lot more if they had had guns? Who knows? But the the fact of the matter is, these people did not have guns, and they were shot in the back running away by government troops from their own government, from their own country. And this is just the first time this happened. This wasn't an isolated incident. Yeah. So I read this article, um, I think about three years ago, there was a uh, sort of firsthand account from a, a writer from England named Sir Alan Donald, and it was declassified three years ago. He wrote this account on June 5th. So, you know, we'll we'll finish up on what happened June 3rd and 4th. But it was a, a very fresh account of what happened. He was over there, and he got his information from a source who had spoken to a very close friend in China State Council who apparently previously had always proved very reliable, very even-handed, um, and very factual in the things that he would, uh, I guess, leak um, mm-hmm. out to his friend. And mm-hmm. the account of... What happened is just like mind-boggling that they were there were snipers shooting people in on their balconies mm-hmm. uh, that weren't even not down on the street protesting. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that there were snipers using street cleaners and things just sort of as target practice. Uh, there were young women who were begging for their life that were bayoneted through the chest. Uh, there was one account of a three-year-old that was wounded and the mom was racing to try and help it and they mowed her down. Uh, they were, you know, hosing body parts and entrails into the drains of the street. It was just it, they were mowing people down at like 40 miles per hour, just running people over mm-hmm. in these personnel trucks. And it just can't be overstated what a complete and utter massacre this was. Yeah, I mean, the the end result of this was as uh, on the high end, maybe 10,000 people. Civilians, yeah. almost almost to a person, was were killed overnight from June third to fourth in the violence that that took place, and then on the next day, June fourth, unarmed, many of them shot in the back, just just killed, and including yeah, like like you say, some people weren't even down on the street; they were in their apartment. They just had the the misfortune of having an apartment whose windows looked out onto Tiananmen Square. Uh, and who had caught the attention of a sniper on a nearby rooftop. Like, it was just, just ghastly. One of the worst things that any government's ever done to its own people, certainly in modern times. Um, it, it doesn't really get much worse than that. Yeah, so 1.30 a.m., uh, the army is finally in the heart of Beijing. They have surrounded Tiananmen Square, all of these protests, or not all of them, I'm sure some people got out of there, but most of these protesters are still there. Um, they are ordered to leave. Uh, the They open fire again. I think at this point they send in something called the 27 Army. I hadn't which heard the that. Which best, the best I could uh, find is that just is, was a very um, loyal division, apparently, that would mm-hmm. they knew that would just obey the orders no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so now they're in Tiananmen Square they're throwing rocks. They're getting strafed by machine gun fire. And within a few hours, most of Tiananmen Square had emptied out. Uh, they were down to about three to 5,000 students. Uh, they took a vote. 
Um, the student union basically said, do you want to go or do you want to stay? And most people wanted to stay, but the leadership said, no, we got to get out of here. Otherwise, we're all going to be killed, basically. Yeah, they just said, the goes have it. Let's go. Um, and, and in retrospect, that was the smartest possible thing they could have done. There wasn't any anything that would have been gained necessarily no, by the, the slaughter. But they were all very surprised that they weren't just indiscriminately slaughtered themselves. Like they, you know, a lot of people had been killed in Tiananmen Square already, and they were cornered by the military. But then rather than just mow them down like had been done to everybody else, they were given an ultimatum that they could either leave now and and just drop the whole uprising thing, or um, they could be jailed, prosecuted, and probably killed. So they they decided to go. And it makes you wonder, like, would it have had an effect if they had been killed? Because these these must have been the very students from the elite Beijing University who were the sons and daughters of the elite leaders in China at the time. Um, so what repercussions would there have been had they died? But ultimately, it was the, the right move. It was the smart thing to do. And the best thing to do is for the leadership, these students themselves, they were in their early 20s tops to say, let's, we should leave, and they did. Yeah, so, you know, Tiananmen Square itself <laughs> gets all the press and the and the um, historical record kind of lies in Tiananmen Square, but uh, it was it was all over Beijing. The, mm-hmm. um, June 4th, like this was on June 3rd. On June 4th, some say that that's where the most loss of life happened and some of the bloodiest, uh, I was about to say battle, but it wasn't even a battle. The bloodiest part of the massacre right. happened the next day in these surrounding streets. Yeah, for Tiananmen Square to have, like you say, all the press, very little actually happened there. It was mostly in the area around it, in the rest of Beijing. Um, but the the street that actually runs in front of Tiananmen Square, um, Shungan, yeah, Shungan Avenue, it um it got the most coverage and has the most uh, record of what happened because there happened to be a high rise hotel along Shungan Avenue that that housed a bunch of Western journalists who were surreptitiously recording and and photographing this whole thing and documenting it. Yeah, so they, that was very fortuitous um, because, you know, we'll get to Tank Man later. But uh, on this avenue, the uh, protesters gathered and they started to get on the PLA troops demanding answers. Uh, the army said, all right, you need to disperse again or face the consequences. And once again, just like in the other instances, the army just opened fire and uh, they just barreled down the avenue and people were scrambling. They were getting out of the way. They were hiding behind trees and buildings. And there would be a little period of calm. And then people would gather up again. And this is what makes this all so tragic is mm-hmm. the people would continually get the nerve to try again over and over. Yeah, and a lot of those people the next day on, on Shungan Avenue um, were the parents of these these protesters who they wanted to get into Tiananmen Square to find out what had happened to their kids. They didn't, they hadn't heard from them yet. They thought maybe they were dead in there. So I think that might have been what drove them to, to come back over and over again, even after being fired upon. Um, and it, I saw footage of this. There's like after that first wave, maybe even after the second wave, this whole thing went on uh, a dozen or so times where yeah. the people would come back up and confront the military. The military would open fire on them. They'd run away. And then the, the people would like gather their courage up again and go do it again. At least after the first or second wave, uh, there's an ambulance that's shown like rushing to the scene and they fire on that. And they seem to have either killed or possibly injured the driver because it like it, it veers off course and runs into like a, a booth or some of some sort. So they were firing on ambulances that were coming to help the the injured, who they they'd fired on just a, a few minutes earlier. Yeah, I saw one report that they uh, one uh, I'm not sure how it split up, but one troop fired on their own officer and murdered him because. I think he had shown a little bit of resistance or maybe the way I read it, it was a kind of even just like, hey, what are we doing here? Like a little bit of Mm self-doubt about their mission. Mm -hmm. And so they murdered him. Wow. Man. I mean, imagine this, like whether you're in America or the UK or Australia, like imagine your own army doing this to you. 
like showing up in your city and just opening fire. Like what a just nightmare situation that would be. Yeah. Should we take another break? Yes. All right. We'll take another break and we'll talk about uh, Tank Man and sort of the legacy of the massacre at Tiananmen Square right after this. Stop. You, you, you know. Stop. 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 You should know. No. Stop. Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care. Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy, but you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy. It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for. Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com, we've done your homework. So like I said, Chuck, there was about, uh, on the high end, 10,000 residents of Beijing killed June 3rd and 4th of 1989. Um, That's all higher. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, I mean, the account from the one guy said that it was at least 10,000. Wow. And that was from his supposed source from inside the Chinese government. And that's that's just killed. That's not killed or injured. That's not just total casualties. That's that's killed. Yep. Um, The... uh, the the government of China, whenever they they did acknowledge that this even happened, which we'll get to in a little bit, they said I think it was like uh, two two forty one, like two hundred something is what they said, mm-hmm. and they included in that a lot of soldiers and and officers, and it is true that there were reports of you know some of these barricades that people had put up around Beijing, where they there were enough people that they overran you know troop like troop transports and killed soldiers on board. So there were some soldiers that died, but far and away, the most casualties were on the civilian side, unarmed civilian side, keep in mind. Yeah, I think I saw the um, Chinese Red Cross initially said 2,700, mm-hmm. but that was quickly squashed. Uh, and that even seemed super, super low. Right, right. So... um this is uh that was June fourth that the worst of the massacre happened. It was in broad daylight, and then June fifth, um, things had calmed down some in the sense that there was not necessarily indiscriminate mowing down of people in the streets anymore. People had just basically resigned to give up and stay inside. the The Tiananmen protests had been completely squashed. Um, and it was, I guess, calm, as calm as could be, considering that there were still plenty of, like, tanks and martial law in the area. And on Xiong'an uh, Avenue, like a column of, I think, eight tanks or a few a few tanks, I'm not sure how many there were, um, gathered into a line and started going down the avenue. And then just out of nowhere, this one guy, tank man, steps out of nowhere and just stands in front of the lead tank and eventually the tank just comes to a stop. And I guess there were, this is all right in plain view of the Western journalists of a lot of people who were watching this, waiting for the tank to just run this guy down or to yeah. just shoot him with the machine gun. Just basically treat him just like, like you know, 10,000 or more other people had been treated in the last day. And to everyone's great surprise, it didn't happen. Instead, the tank just tried to move. Yeah, so he stops the tanks, 
uh, he's motioning, you know, like kind of get out of here. He's kind of sweeping his arm around. Mm -hmm. And, this, you know, this footage is just remarkable to, to look at even today. The tank tries to go around him, and like you said. Then the guy gets in its path. The tank stops again. Mm -hmm. The tank goes to the left. They're doing this just surreal dance yeah. of the tank moving and the guy moving in front of it. And then finally the tank stopped again, cut its motor, and the guy climbs up on top of the tank and starts yelling at the soldiers. Yeah. One of the dudes in the tank uh, pokes his little head out, and they start talking. And I say little head. I think he had a normal size head, but just from the, <laughs> the vantage point of the footage, it sure. was a little head. Sure. Uh, or who knows? Maybe he was a tiny-headed person. It was smaller than normal. You can never say. <laughs> so uh, they start yelling at each other and having an exchange. And the guy gets back down on the ground. Tank man does. Uh, the tank starts his engine, and he gets right back in front of, uh, front of it again. And that is when uh, that very famous photo from Charles Cole is, is snapped. Mm -hmm. Of him just standing, again, with those shopping bags by his side, just as defiant as a human being's ever been. And, I mean, this is after 10,000 of his fellow Beijing Beijingers have been killed in the street, and this guy said, this is enough. Like, that's the thing. To me, the guy said, this is enough. I'm sick of this S. You guys need to go. That is mm -hmm. very clearly what the guy was saying. But the beautiful thing about Tank Man is you can't hear what he said. You can't yeah. see. You can't see his face... Uh, nearly enough to to even tell who he was. There's no way anybody saw who this guy actually was, um, at least not from like a camera or anything. So you also couldn't read his lips or anything. So it's left up to you and your imagination what this guy was saying and what he was doing. And that actually comes through in the fact that China, right after this incident, broadcast it on TV, but they broadcast it as clear evidence of just how much restraint the Chinese military had shown in Beijing and how all of the casualties right. that had actually come out of it were the, uh, the fault and the uh, on account of the these um, rebellious anti-communist uprisers and that the, the military had really done a good job with this. But it, it really kind of underlines, like, you can put into Tank Man what you want, but far and away— the vast majority of the world, because that Charles Cole photo quickly got out, and we'll explain how in a second, the vast majority of the world was inspired by this guy showing yeah. courage, that that's how they took it, that this guy was saying enough, you can do what you want to me, but I represent the real true feeling of the people of Beijing, of the people of China, of all freedom-loving people in the world. I represent how they feel about you in that tank and all the people who sent you here right now. Yeah, it was, it was remarkable. Um, so Charles Cole takes this picture. He is uh, seen by some security officials that are on a rooftop across the street, and he knows this. And he's like, they're going to come for my camera um, for sure. So he very smartly pops this roll of film out mm -hmm. and hides it in the water tank of his toilet in his bathroom. Yes. I would they have keistered it. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think— <laughs> Can you imagine? I think the keister would be in, sought out— sooner than the toilet tank. I, I guess it was you're probably smart. right. I, the first thing they did was probably bend him over and see what he had. So they did come, and they did confiscate his camera, and they uh, confiscated a roll of film, but it was from the day before. And he came back the next day, and that to that roll of film was still in the toilet tank. Yeah, he, he got it. Otherwise, the world may have never seen this image. yeah. No, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true because there's that video footage of it that well, shows this, the whole well, thing. true. And did we say also that he, um, have we gotten to the part where he's hustled off? Who, Cole? Tank Man. Oh, no. Okay. Well, I just spoiled it. So, I mean, there is the video of it, but yeah, that, that, that photo that the world got to see because of Charles Cole's quick thinking— that that became like the symbol of you know the the Tiananmen Square uprising, like Tank Man just standing defiantly. Um, I wonder if uh, do you know the the release date of the video footage? 
No, I don't. I know that stuff leaked out pretty quick. I imagine that everybody was kind of like, ho-hum, I'm just leaving Beijing for no good reason. I'm a Western journalist just traveling to Shanghai to fly back to London for no good reason. You don't need to search me for anything and just got out of there as fast as they could. I just wonder if they released the footage after the photo had become released. I'm not sure. I know that there were a lot of journalists watching that at the time, including just, you know, um, text journalists, when, writers, I guess you'd call them, um, that, <laughs> that, that were witnessing this and writing about it and memorizing it and documenting it. Um, and the fact that they were left alive let this idea get out because, as we'll see, the Chinese government, like, squashed a, a memory of this. This is a lot—it bears a lot of resemblance to— um, to the uh, Tulsa race massacre. Yeah. You know, it just follows a lot of the the same key points. But um, to sum up Tankman, or to, to wrap up his story, um, after this, this, like you said, this weird dance goes on for a little while, and he's just standing there, and there's they're in a standoff. It's between him and the tank. A guy runs, it comes up on his bike, and you could tell he's just kind of like, you, okay, you need to get out of here. This is not going to go well for you. And that kind of cues up a couple of other guys who run into the frame of this video footage and just grab Tankman and hustle him away. And there's some debate over who those people were and what became of Tankman. Some witnesses say, well, they were clearly, you know, members of the Communist Party you know, secret police, and he he was taken away and executed. But if you watch the footage, to me, these are these are people who are getting him out of there to help him. That's how that's I. That's what it looked it like to sure. me. Yeah, yeah. So they think the fact that the Chinese government did not parade this guy around, hold a public trial and probably a public execution to make an example out of him, and the fact that no one has any idea what his name was, and no one's ever said it was this guy definitively makes people think that he is still alive and hadn't told anybody, that he he made it out of there alive, basically. Yeah, I really wonder. I mean, there have been various uh, accounts over the years of who they think it was. Mm -hmm. Some people have even named individuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people have said that, no, he was executed. Some people said, no, he wasn't. Uh, Some people said he was incarcerated, never to be heard from again. And we just, there's really no way of knowing uh, it is interesting to read, though, all the accounts of what people think might have happened. Yeah, I like to go with that he um, was absorbed by a crowd and disappeared, like, yeah, in, like in li- to live, not disappeared, <laughs> like, disappeared, like, from the government's radar. Yeah, it, like at the end of uh, Victory, the great World War II soccer movie. Oh, I never saw that one. Well, should I spoil it? Sure. <laughs> I, I think I kind of did. They they win? All right. If you want to see this movie, don't listen to this, people. Okay. But the whole deal is is they stage the uh, Allies, uh, prisoners of war, stage the soccer match mm-hmm. against Germany. But the real plan is that they are to escape during a tunnel in the locker room. Oh, nice. Uh, this ragtag team of soccer players that the prisoners assemble – uh, featuring Sylvester Stallone as the lone American in goal. And uh, they think that they can win the soccer game at halftime so they don't escape. They decide what? to not go and to play that soccer match. What? <laughs> and they win, and it's amazing. And the stadium is field is stormed, and they are absorbed by the crowd, and you see – Images of them getting hustled off and having, like, street clothes put on them over their soccer uniforms. Right. And that's the end of the movie. It's great. So they they were very fortunate that the crowd treated them that way, but they didn't know that that was going to happen? No. That was one of the dumbest decisions ever made by a group of human beings in the world. To try and win a soccer game instead of escape? (laughs) (laughs) Because it doesn't matter. The soccer game doesn't matter. Oh, but it does. You're escaping to freedom? That matters. That was so dumb. (laughs) Such a good movie, man. Is that based on a real-life true story? You know, I have no idea. It's got to be. I don't think so. It has to be. I hope so. Okay, so anyway... Um, we don't know what became of Tank Man, but the the his his image, they think or they say, 
uh, actually inspired a lot of those um, protests in Eastern Europe that had made the Communist Party so nervous for a while, Chuck, that um, they actually inspired those protesters to go all the way and actually led to the downfall of the USSR. What he did not lead to the downfall of was the Chinese Communist Party because they won. They, they, They went as far as they needed to go to make sure that they held on to power. Like, they went far beyond, like, any reasonable point and engaged in not civil war, a massacre of their own people just to hold on to power and keep things the way that they were. But one thing that really changed that directly came out of this June 1989 popular uprising was a shift toward economic reform, that they had said, okay, you people, you want some economic reform, you want a a bigger shot at life, you want more, you want to make more money, you want, you know, luxury brands to build malls and open up stores here, we'll give you that. And they did, they opened up China to foreign investment. And I mean, we all know how that story went. Um, This rise of China that we're seeing now, uh, and have been seeing for the last couple decades, directly came from the June 1989 uprisings, and the decision for the government to say, okay, we'll open up some economic reform. Yeah, and in the end, like we said, it you know, up to and perhaps more than 10,000 people murdered, um, at least 1,600 people imprisoned. Uh, God, I think it was much more than that. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's from a, a human rights group called the, uh, the Dai Hua Foundation. And, uh, you know, Imprisoned for, uh, you know, crimes against the government, um, re-education camps, life sentences. Uh, supposedly in 2016, a, uh, a man was uh, supposedly the very last prisoner from the Tiananmen uh, massacre to be released 27 years later. But who yeah. knows the truth? And a lot, I mean, a lot of public executions, like making examples out of people scaring the the bejesus out of the population, saying like, "This is what happens. Look what happens if you're a, a, um, a if you're anti-government." But again, they were they were doing it in a way saying like, "There was just a few people who were really against the government. We know you would never do this," and it really right. had this huge chilling effect on that. And so they said, "We'll give you economic reform. Do not ever ask for political reform again because this is what happens when you do." We're in charge. We're keeping things the way they are, but we'll make it so you can have more money or whatever. And now China is basically like um, much wealthier. There's a huge middle class than there was before, but there's also a tremendous amount of inequality that wasn't there before. But you can also say, on the other hand, everybody was equally poor. Um, Now there's a lot less people who aren't poor, and even a lot of the poorer people are way better off than they were. But they still live under one of the most repressive regimes in the world. Um, and that was the, that was the trade-off. That was the bargain that was made. Yeah. And you know what? There's one thing that I think I really learned from this. And it was that you have to nip corruption in the bud before it takes true root. Because if you let your government and your leaders get away with corruption, they're going to try to get away with a little more and a little more and a little more. And then before you know it, corruption is so entrenched in your government and in your society that the people who are in charge have so much to answer for, have so much that they've done that they would not want people to know about, that they can't ever afford to let go of power. And so they will do anything to hold on to power, including murder their own people who try to take them out of power. And I mean, yeah. this happened in China, but if it, get, if, if it reaches that point, you could make a pretty good case that this could happen anywhere. Sure. That's, that's what I took from it. You you cannot as a society, you cannot as a uh, um, a political group of citizens, a citizenry, put up with corruption, no matter how big or how small, in your leaders, in your government. You can't do it. Yeah, it's uh, man, what a time! But like you said, it's it's a cautionary tale forever. Agreed. Uh, oh, uh, one more thing, Chuck. They showed some. They showed a picture of Tank Man to some kids from Beijing University when that documentary was made in 2006. And yeah, either either they pretended they didn't know 
who it was or they legit did not know what they were looking at. Yeah, it um, looked real to me, man. Yeah. But you could also make the case like that this is such a taboo subject that like you would pretend on camera to some Western journalists with government minders yeah. sitting right next to them that or you that. had no <laughs> idea what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's Tiananmen Square. Now you know. Um, and if you want to know more about it, there's a lot to read about it um, all over the internet, thankfully, as long as you live outside of China. Yeah, I was about to say, all over <laughs> one internet. Right. Uh, and since Chuck said one internet, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is... Which one should I read here? So, you know what? Let me read this. This was a. Uh, this one just came in. This was a... Uh, a listener mail prediction that mm-hmm. puts Jared from sub from Subway to shame. Did you read this one? No, I don't know which one that is. Uh, well, just sit back then and hold on to your seats. Okay. Uh, hey guys, my family and I live in Oregon. Have been in lockdown for the past ten weeks. My husband is a firefighter paramedic, so we are really staying home so we can minimize the risk of spreading the virus because he has so much exposure due to his job. I am a substitute teacher and am not work right now, but I'm homeschooling our kids age two, six, and eight. Uh, we are very lucky my husband's job is essential, though, because so we're not in the position that so many Americans are in with lo- losing both of our jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I'm not homeschooling, I get to listen to as much stuff you should know as possible. So on to uh, the reason I'm writing this. I was listening to the Globe of Death episode from December... 2017 and I went back and listened to this in fact maybe we should play this one again uh, the whole the listener thing right mail, now? well let me just read this and <laughs> we'll see if we need to we'll play the entire episode in this listener mail no just the listener mail oh gotcha okay the listener mail on this episode was really eerie uh, it's a woman who predicts the next global outbreak will be a flu pandemic mm-hmm. And it calls on the government uh, for cutting CDC funding to prepare for an event like this. Uh, it's very strange to be listening to this listener mail in this situation after being in quarantine. I know you guys love it when your show predicts events, so I thought I would throw this out there. Uh, thanks that you do uh, all that you do to keep me sane and that I'm able to hear other grown-ups talking about interesting top, uh, topics. My kids are always asking what I'm laughing at and then ask to hear what Josh and Chuck are saying. Thank mm-hmm. you, guys. That is from Tiffany Halleck. And uh, should we play a portion of that? Uh, Yeah, we should. All right. Well, here's the listener mail from 2017 and see if this uh, sounds a little eerie to you. I'm going to call this flu epidemic. Okay. Hey, guys. I'm a master's of public health candidate in Atlanta at Emory. Nice. And we spent a good amount of time discussing the flu I remember you mentioning the Spanish flu and wondered if such an epidemic could happen again. Bad news is it can, and it probably will, uh, according to public health scholars, that is. The culprit is our meat industry, which keeps an overabundance of fowl and pigs in tight, unsanitary quarters. Because of the way this industry is growing, and some might argue due to its lack of regulation, uh, these unsafe conditions lend to the rapid mutation of the virus. Uh, This, coupled with the ever-decreasing CDC budget, makes it harder and harder for vaccine scientists to create accurate vaccines. On top of all that, the flu is seen as a low threat by most of our society, rendering us ill-equipped and underprepared. Uh, Most people are scared of Ebola or other difficult-to-catch viruses. However, influenza is a rapidly mutating and highly aggressive virus that is easily transmittable and is right here on our doorstep. Scientists predict the flu might be the uh, next most deadly epidemic if we are not careful. My recommendation to our Congress people, stop cutting the CDC budget. Prevention is key. I know I probably sound like a quack. Not to me. For real. But just wanted to spread a little knowledge and say hey to my favorite podcasters. Thanks for putting on such an amazing show. And that is from Jasmine. Wow. That was pretty eerie. It turned out to be Dr. Deborah Burks herself. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Dude, that was a that was a good listener mail, and that was from Tiffany. You said, yeah, that was from Tiffany. Thanks for that one, Tiffany. Thanks, good catch, um, and uh, thanks for letting us know that you guys are doing okay. Uh, hang in there with the homeschooling, and hang in there, everybody who uh, whose job was not essential, who's on furlough or um, beating up the unemployment office website. Uh, hang in there, everybody, because things are going to get better, uh, and we will be here the whole time too. 
Okay? That's right. Okay. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us in the meantime to say hi or whatever, well, you can do it via email. How about that? Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. In business, first impressions are everything. And that's why every business owner needs to know about Ruby. Ruby is the virtual receptionist company who screens, transfers, and takes messages 24-7, all while making your customers feel special. You definitely don't want to hire a subpar front desk person. And with Ruby, they engage with your callers in a conversational way, just like your best employee would. Never miss another customer call again. This year, make your business the best it can be. Visit ruby.com today or just call them at 844-900-RUBY.